0: David Hodge is an artist who takes creative inspiration for his work from his life. He spent 25 years as the Queen of Soho, legendary drag artist Dusty O, has hosted many iconic London club nights, DJed all over the world, and been a star on the West End stage and screen. You name it, he did it. In a huge wig and couture designer outfit. here David talks about each decade of his extraordinary life, the highs and the lows. This is David Hodge, the boy who sat by the window.
1: Hello David. Hello, Jackie. <laughs> How are you? I'm
2: very well. Good what a lovely week.
1: Oh, good man. We talked about the 70s.
2: We did. And it was
1: all rather bleak.
2: It was, but the 70s was quite bleak.
1: was quite bleak, but now we're in the 80s. Oh, I love the 80s. Things are looking up.
2: Oh, yes, it was the decade of change for me, personally.
1: Which is great. You're still at school.
2: Yes, yeah, I'm at senior school now.
1: Right. You'd led a sort of solitary life at school, hadn't you, in the earlier years? Yes. How was it looking in the sort of teenage years?
2: It became a lot better, actually. I was still teased quite a lot. Um, there was still lots of name calling and quite a lot of bullying as well. Obviously, I went to my secondary school was a lot bigger than my little school. It had fifteen hundred kids, like my little school. It was also completely, you know, it was a very middle class white school. However. I did make more friends. I wasn't isolated. I'd made a couple of friends who, you know, I started doing more social things, going to parties and things like that, which I'd never done really. I'd also discovered that through wit, through being funny, through being the clown, you can deflect a lot of attention, a lot of negative attention. And I think I'd started to um, to realise that and to use it to my advantage. In some ways, I became quite popular Because I was funny. I was a funny little gooky kid, you know? Yeah, so it kind of worked in a way for me. And I was also sharp. I was clever. So did you do
1: well at school? Yeah. Academically?
2: Academically, I did really well, yeah. In those days, it was O-levels and CSEs. And I walked away from, you know, when I was 16 with eight O-levels, five at grade A. Wow. Wow. So I did well. Yeah. Mm. I wasn't I wasn't stupid. I was not a stupid kid. I was very booky as well, you know. I sort of I liked reading. I used to spend a lot of time avoiding doing games mainly in the library. We had a very nice librarian called Mrs. Fox who would let me organise the books for her and all the new books, which meant that I could sit in her office while they were doing rugby or whatever, whatever I managed to sort of squeeze out of that week.
1: Were you never Uh, sport?
2: No, God, I was always the last one. Typical, you know, every gay man, well, not every gay man, quite a few gay men will tell you they're always the last one to be picked because they, you know and don't want to run round in the cold. I hated it, but I was quite clever in the fact that I didn't have to do it that much because in summer I would always forge notes from my mother saying that I'd got terrible hay fever. I hadn't. <laughs> um, and in winter it was asthma. <laughs> so there was always something. And eventually they stopped asking me to go. By I, I don't remember going to games in fourth and fifth year when in you know, 14, 15 I, I just didn't go. I used to go to the library, or I'd go to the hymn book cupboard. We had a hymn book. We'd go and sit in there and read.
1: <laughs> and what about the teachers? Nicer teachers, I hope. Um, yes,
2: yes. There were the teachers who were on the whole better. There was one particularly horrible one who, um, when we were doing reproduction in biology, I remember him standing behind me, putting his hand on my head and saying, and of course, there are some people who will never reproduce because they have an anomaly, a genetic anomaly. And everyone knew that he was talking about me. His name was Mr Bullock and he was a pig. Um, (laughs) But uh, yeah, there were some really nice teachers as well. I had a couple of wonderful English teachers. I was always quite good at English as well. With the one particular teacher that I remember with great fondness was a lady called Mrs. Wall. And if you can remember the carry on films, Hattie Jakes, oh, yes. you know, well, Mrs. Wall looked like um, a glamorous version of Hattie Jakes, really. She was an enormous lady, always wore a little wiggy thing with a big bow in her hair, big silk, silk scarf bow, loads of makeup jewellery, hundreds of bangles. You could hear her clanging when she walked (laughs) everywhere she went. She was very theatrical. And um, she was an English teacher and and she liked me for some reason. I did find out later on that she'd got a gay son herself. So I don't know if she sort of sheltered me a little bit because she knew what he'd probably gone through. And she would always give me dinner passes because um, that was a time when we all had to sit and wait in, you know, in the hall. We would all, all wait for our school dinner and we'd go in in sittings. And it, it was a time where if you were going to be bullied, that would be the time that you were bullied, you know, because there was only like one dinner lady to supervise 400 kids, you know. And Mrs Walt would always give me a dinner pass, which meant that I could go in first and get and get my dinner, <laughs> which was good. And I was good at her subject and I, and she did drama as well. She really encouraged me in that. And I think she saw something that I was a, you know, even though the situation was as it was, I was quite an extrovert, really. Underneath it all, there was this little monster waiting to escape. And had
1: you taken part in drama productions?
2: Yes, she would always give me really the best parts, really. She she was in control of all that. So yeah, I I always got what I wanted in that respect. It was great. She was a lovely lady. she Used to bring a dog to work. It would be in the car. Little Yorkshire Terrier. Great big woman with a tiny Yorkshire Terrier. She'd leave it in the car and then halfway through the lesson, she'd say, oh, David, go and take Pebbles for a wee. So I'd have to go and take Pebbles for a wee. Um, She trusted me to do that. One day, Pebbles made a bit of a dash for it and that was a scary moment, but I got her back in the car. Um, (laughs) And she was wonderful, anyway, this lady, Mrs. Walls. And she uh, had cast me in this review thing that she'd put together, like a school review, and I was singing and dancing and shaking it around like a good And she'd, you know, she'd tutored me quite well. After the performance, which went, I think everyone thought it was okay, she introduced me to someone who she knew in the foyer of our school. She said, David, you must come and speak to Alain. and. I thought, Elaine, oh, where's Elaine? Sounds
1: exotic.
2: Thought, Elaine. Yes. I thought it was a woman, Elaine, oh, but Elaine, okay. it was a, a man. Elaine turned out to be the uh, senior guy at the Aldridge Youth Theatre, which was a specific purpose-built little theatre for children to learn theatrical arts in Aldridge. It's wonderful, still there, amazing place. Elaine was about five foot three. Thick foundation, loads of eyeliner, highlighted hell hair, which he always used to say, oh, my hair. Everyone says I look like Noel Edmonds. Probably looked more like Noel Gordon than Noel Edmonds, in all honesty. <laughs> um, and platform shit. Oh, he was, he was a work of art. He was really funny. Um, totally over the top. Very, very camp anyway. So I went and I met Alain, who I started to call Alan after a while. Um, And he invited me to join the youth theatre. He said, You were very good. Would you like to join the youth theatre? So I said, I'd love to, I'd love to. So on the way home I told my mum and dad and my dad said, I remember my dad saying, If that puff touches you, make sure you tell me (laughs) Anyway, um so um I joined the youth theatre and that really was when things started to change for me, sort of emotionally I felt much less isolated. Became part of a group, started to work with a, an amazing group of kids who I'm still in touch with most of them now. You know, there was no reason for me to hide my personality, to hide my exuberance or my flamboyance. It was encouraged, and, you know, I was put in charge of the makeup, and that became my skill, which in later years was a big help to me, you know, because when I did start doing the drag and wearing makeup and everything bit later on in the 80s I'd got a head start on everyone else I knew how to do it properly and that was mainly because of Elaine showing me and yeah I became part of a little group and we'd put on shows and it was wonderful it used to take three evenings a week I'd be there Saturday mornings it was all self-funded as well. They didn't get any charity, any money from charity organisations, no lottery in those days, so you couldn't apply for a lottery grant or anything like that.
1: And did you have to pay to be part of the group?
2: It was only like 10p a, t- a session. Okay. It was nothing really. Yes, I don't know how they funded it in those days because I mean, there was four shows a year, four or five shows a year. And as I say, it's a proper theatre. So, you know, 250 people could sit down in a steeped theatre seating. It was brilliant, brilliant facilities. So they must have made enough money to keep it toddling on anyways, which they do and did. Yeah, it was absolutely wonderful. And Elaine would take groups of us away for little summer holidays because I'd never really, other than once or twice, I'd never really been on holiday. Um, it just wasn't something our family did because of the constant situation with my dad, never knowing what sort of state he was going to be in, basically, or whether he'd have a job or not, or whatever, so we didn't, we had a couple of family holidays, but not nothing major. so Elaine and myself and a group of five or six lads would all go down, and we stayed in Brighton. We did the three or four times, it was amazing in a tent, and um that was when I first sort of really noticed out gay people doing their thing. And, no one really commenting in a negative way about it, and that was kind of um fascinating for me at that point. I think it was about thirteen fourteen thirteen probably so obviously puberty had set in, and you start having your you know emotions up and down, and you know you s- and I knew you know I kind of knew that I was gay, but I also knew that it was something that in certain circles I couldn't speak about. But what happened was I realised that there were circles where it was fine, you know, and I went, after seeing Brighton, seeing guys holding hands, walking along, I thought, oh, my God. I'd never seen anything like that. I'd only ever seen Larry Grayson. (laughs) And, yeah, it was... And these were
1: just normal people.
2: Just normal people doing their stuff and no one laughed at them or no one said anything. Well, I didn't see them laugh at them or say anything. And I remember asking Alan if he was gay. I said, Alan, are you gay? And um, he, he basically, you know, he was quite professional. It wouldn't have been appropriate for him to say if he was or if he wasn't. But basically he said he was. <laughs> and that was kind of a, a, a wonderful moment. And he would always encourage me to be myself. And he would say, oh, you must do exactly as you wish, David. You must express yourself in whatever way you wish. Um, if you want to do this, you do it. Who's to say you can't? And he was the first person that had ever said that to me. Who's to say I can't? Obviously, and the people who were to say I can't were usually my parents, and it did develop into sort of a bit of a stressful time. It's
1: difficult, though, for parents, isn't it, though, because they were probably trying to protect you. Oh,
2: of course they were. Of course they were. And, and
1: you usually do find you get encouragement from, it is usually from other people. Yeah. You know, it might be an auntie or somebody yeah. else who sort of tries to encourage you, you know, in a particular direction. But your parents are there because they think, oh no, we're protecting, that's what we're doing.
2: My parents were very much parents in the old fashioned way and they still are, my mum's still alive, in that they weren't your friend, they were your parents and there was parameters, there was rules, there was how you spoke to them, there was what they were permitted to do to you, which was pretty much anything. Um, and you stuck to it you know it wasn't like it is now
1: that that is the role of a parent and they're not there to be your best friend no. they are there to, and there has to be a level of fear I think that stays in your head my mum will kill me yeah if I oh do. god yeah and was, I think that's a really important mom. boundary to yeah. have
2: yeah yeah and it never stopped me though really if I wanted to do something I'd do it if I wanted to dress up when I, it was that time later on in the 80s when I started wanted to express myself visually. I would do it and she'd hit the roof and try and stop me and hit me and all sorts of things, you know, but I'd still do it.
1: <laughs> so that was when you went to college? That was yeah, that, that was time. A, li- a little
2: bit later on, yeah.
1: Where were you getting your influence from? Obviously magazines, there were more magazines in the 80s, weren't there? Well, 1982
2: and 83 were pivotal years for me because 1982 was the year that Culture Club had their first number one record, which was, I think, followed by about another 10 top 10 hits. And so Boy George became the media darling. You know, he was everywhere. I suppose for 1982, 83, 84, he was probably the most famous pop star on the planet. And he was everywhere. In those days, there was no internet. So we relied on magazines like Smash Hits and Number One Magazine. All the teenagers would grab them, tape the top 40 on a Sunday night. Watched (laughs) off of the Pops. Watched off of the Pops. Religiously. Religiously. And so, of course, this person appeared right at formative years, really, who was this crazy fashion man, woman, talented singer and... Never seen anyone like him. Yeah, I became like hooked and became like the world's number one culture club fan. I still am. (laughs) Um, Things have changed slightly. You know, I'm friends with George (laughs) now. But in those days, he was the pop star. Everything he did, everything he said, every look he did, every time he changed his makeup.
1: So did that influence you to start trying makeup yourself?
2: Oh, God, yeah, yeah. Because I was so obsessed with him when I went to college. I went, to a, I went to a college that did art and drama. So it was fairly, you know, there was goths there, there was hippies, there was all those sort of tribes from the 80s.
1: New romantics.
2: New romantics, of course. So that was when I started to play with my visual appearance and, you know, plucked my eyebrows, started wearing eyeliner, dyed my hair for the first time, grew my hair, started wearing more androgynous clothes really started to play with my appearance for the first time. And that was a direct result of George. Of course it was, you know, because he was such a powerful social influencer in his own way during those years. Clearly for people like me who felt like alienated, you know, George always says, and he says to this day, oh, I was great for the gay boys and fat girls (laughs) because he gave them that feeling of not being alone and, The songs were beautiful and he's got a gorgeous voice. And so you weren't just worshipping at the temple of fashion. You you got the full package, you know, you got music, you got looks, you got wit. His way of dealing with people criticising him and his music and his looks and everything fascinated me. And I thought, I'd never seen anything like it. I'd never seen anyone stand up to the world.
1: And for a time, he was everywhere.
2: Everywhere. You couldn't escape
1: him. You could not escape <laughs> him. I mean, and so it did seem like, well, look at him. Yeah, look at him. Look, and he
2: was 21 at yeah, that and time.
1: Yeah, and look at what he's done yeah. with his life. Yeah. And this is how he looks.
2: And he can be himself. He knows people who, you know, you'd read about his friends and things in magazines. you'd think, oh, I'd love to be part of that. I'd love to go to London and be, do that and dress like that. Oh, he looks amazing. You know, that, that whole... It gave me a goal, I suppose. And I realised that I wasn't on my own, that there was like this king freak out there. And of course, by the time I went to college, I started seeing other people who were like me, you know, dressing up kids into fashion, into, you know, obviously gay kids. And you think, oh, I'm not on my own. I'm, there's more, more out there. And your eyes gradually open and gradually take in. I think that's what happened to me in the eighties. It was absolutely phenomenal.
1: And what was the influence of the Gay Times on your oh, life?
2: The, the Gay Times. When I was about, I think I was about fifteen, sixteen. Um, I used to see Gay Times in in a in a magazine shop in the Bullring Ring in Birmingham. By that time, I was allowed to go into town on my own. Obviously, being fifteen, and um. I used to always see it and I think, oh, I should buy that. I should buy that. But I was always too embarrassed to buy it. You know, it was like a real big thing. They'll know if I buy it, they'll know. And then one day I just thought, oh, sod it. I'm going to buy it, see what's the, see what this is all about. And I knew, you know, I knew I was gay. guy. So um, I bought it and I hid it under the bed. <laughs> As all teenagers, the worst place to hide anything, really, isn't it? Why it's, it's put it the obvious the bed, place? Yeah, you know, put it in the shed or something. Um, but I read it cover to cover. I knew every article. I knew. Look, in those days, there used to be all the the um personal adverts in the back because there wasn't Grinder, there wasn't Gaydar, there was none of those. You know, there was no internet, so literally, if you wanted to meet someone, you had to had to meet them, you know. (laughs) And um, I remember paying quite a lot of interest to that. And next to the personals, there was a number for um, an organisation. It's still in existence, I believe. There was two. There was one for London Friend and there was another one called Gay Switchboard. And I thought, I'm going to, and it said, call us and chat if you have issues coming out and blah, blah, blah. And for months, I was like, I want to call them. I'm going to call them. I'm going to call them. But I didn't really know what I was going to say because I was quite naive. You know, I hadn't really had any sexual experience by that point other than once, um, which was a bit of a nothing at school. So it was like, well, what what will I talk about? You know, I have to tell them. Will they know where I live? There's all those things that go through your head. And I did call them eventually, but I remember I had to, um, I couldn't call them from the home number because my mother had a terrible habit of picking up the other phone and going, who are you talking to? Get off the phone, it's costing a fortune. So I, My
1: mum eventually put a lock on it. A lock well, on it, yes, yeah. So there's it. ways of picking them. Then. Oh, believe me, we worked it out.
2: <laughs> <laughs> and you can tap the top. That's what we did. Yeah, you used yeah. to do yeah. the We used tapping. to tap the yeah. number yeah, out, Yeah, I yes. know, oh, that one. Um, but anyway, I hadn't worked the tapping out by that point. No. And she was always in. So I got a load of 10 Ps together and went to the local phone box and I called the number and I remember that there was this guy and he said, hi, I'm David, go switchboard. His name was David as well. And I was like silence. So he said, you can talk, you know, everyone in this office is gay if you've got issues, problems, you can say whatever you want, blah, blah, blah. And I just... That was the moment. I thought, oh, I'm going to say it. I'm going to say the words, you know. So I said, hello, I'm David. I'm gay.
1: (laughs) And the the roof didn't fall in. No,
2: the roof didn't fall in. Nothing happened. I I went red. I remember being so, I thought, oh my God, if anyone hears this. Um,
1: And did it feel liberating
2: though to say it? Well, I finally said it. It was massively liberating. Yeah, it was, but it was still a secret really. There was only this one person on the end of the phone who I'd ever said that to. And I, and he did his shifts at the same time each week. So he said, call me back next week. And I started to chat with him and started eventually to sort of give out a little bit more. And he told me about the bars and the clubs that were in town and that there was actually loads of gay people and not everyone was like Boy George. Some of people were like, you know, big and butch and da-da-da-da. In my world, in my mind, I thought, if I go to a gay club, it's going to be full of fabulous people like George and da-da-da. And obviously it's not. It's full of people, boys next door and people like me, you know. So he sort of gave me the, the thumbs up and told me all about what what was going on out there, who to watch out for, because <laughs> I was very young and I was, you know, I was pretty. And he, he was like, you know, you go down a storm <laughs> with a certain... Uh, by a certain type, so be careful. And of course, I didn't want that type at all. I wanted young, pretty boys like myself.
1: <laughs> and so was, that went on for quite a few months. That went on for a few months. Do you think your parents knew where you were off to with all your tempees? No, no, I didn't. Did your sister know? No. Oh, so you didn't even tell no, your sister? I,
2: I hadn't told her. It was it was my secret. <laughs> you know? the first person I properly told other. Other than him, you know, the, the, the gay switchboard man was my friend Kim at college, who I met in the, when I started college. She was the first one who I actually said, and I didn't say I was gay, because everyone in those days would say, they were, oh, I'm bisexual, because you thought it made you sound more interesting. Oh, I know but, she... but it
1: also seemed to be more acceptable, didn't it? Oh, it was, yeah. Because cause... if you remember, do you remember the TV series Soap? Mm-hmm. And there was a gay character. He had to say, he was bisexual mm. because there was such uproar. About A lot of
2: it. people did. A lot of people did. Even like you know, your pop stars at the time—you, you Pete Burns, you Marilyn, you George—they all said they were bisexual. None of them were.
1: No, <laughs> it's funny, isn't it, that that was—it was seen as okay. It was also
2: seen as cool, wasn't it? Because David Bowie had initially said he was bisexual in the seventies, and Elton had said he was bisexual, so it was kind of like. Coolish, So it was less of a shock.
1: Yes. And it was less of a definite, wasn't it? Yeah. There was always a chance.
2: That you might get with the right woman.
1: Correct. (laughs) That that suddenly it's okay because, you know, that idea that... But inevitably
2: you don't. (laughs) Well, for me anyway. For other people maybe they do, but not for me.
1: So you said to Kim that you were bisexual?
2: Uh, I don't actually remember her sitting, sitting her down and saying it but I must have said it at some point. But I don't remember the actual occasion because we had such a close friendship and still do that I didn't need to.
1: No, she will I, have known. She will
2: have known. And, mm. and I think probably I'd just slipped something in like, oh, he's nice or something. Yeah, <laughs> You know, just teenage banter. But I never had to hide it. anything. And then gradually I sort of came out to the whole group of us. There was a little group of us, about six or seven of us, who became really tight friends in those two years. And it was fine. No one was horrible to me. They were all lovely. Obviously, they were similar age to me, so a bit naive, you know. Uh, what, do you, what do they do? <laughs> well, I didn't know. No,
1: <laughs> so- <laughs> I don't know. But when you find out, will you tell me?
2: Can I have a go? <laughs> <laughs> and
1: so had you started clubbing at that point or going to pubs, bars?
2: Um, just a, after the first year, I saw went to my first gay bar. Been to normal, you know, straight pubs and normal, I nearly said then. Mm. I'd been to to straight pubs, obviously, and a couple of straight clubs and things, but I'd never been to a gay club. And I met this lad at college called Hayden, who was a bit like me, really, but quite flamboyant, liked liked culture club. Mm. (laughs) And, um, but he was sort of, his background was a lot more liberal than mine, so He'd never had the coming out issues with his parents or and all things like that, so it was everything was absolutely fine. He could do what he liked, so I used to go and stay with him at weekends, and we went to gay bars and clubs and alternative clubs full of goths and punks. And that was when I started to dress up more, because Hayden could do what he liked and his mom didn't care. It gave me the freedom of somewhere to go and start, you know, if I wanted to put makeup on, I could put makeup on no one would say, oh, get that off, like they would at home. But it did eventually, you know, after a few months, I started doing it more from home. And how, would, did, how did that? All oh, terrible. <laughs> Not
1: with my dad,
2: though. That's the weird thing. My dad never, ever, he just used to look at me a bit funny and go, <laughs> you know, and even when I, years and years later when I was doing drag as a, as a living, you know, and sort of was on TV and things like that, my dad would find it really funny and, oh, look at you, son. (laughs) But my mother would be enraged by it, obviously. And
1: why do you think she was so enraged, even (laughs) when she saw you making a career out of it?
2: Well, when I was making money from it, She'd stopped being in enraged.
1: Oh, okay. <laughs> well, perhaps, yes, when you were younger, she thought, I don't know where he's heading and yes, it, he won't she, be able to make money she out. She was scared yes.
2: for me, wasn't she? Yes. It was absolutely out of her comfort zone. She'd never yeah. seen anyone like that. My mum was from a very poor working class background. She hadn't had a great education. She'd had to work really hard to put food on the table and to buy us nice things. and like. So, yes, she, she in some senses, our emotional um the emotional side of life was neglected, but we were always provided for and I always knew I was loved. It was just her way of doing it, you know, and that's how she'd been brought up and that's how she is to this day. And I totally respect that and that is fine. That is how she is. And she's I mean she's cool with me now. She's great. My mum's a lovely person. But in those days it was a matter of educating them as well, you know. I had to educate my mother and it took about fifteen years before it got to a point where I could introduce her to a boyfriend or, you know, a partner and where it was comfortable and she felt comfortable with it. And now she's absolutely fine. She loves my husband. You know, she's like, oh, where's Mark? I'm like, well... You know, it's just me. Oh, oh, sorry to disappoint <laughs> <laughs> Dev- you. Know, Devastated. Yeah. She prefers him.
1: <laughs> so you'd go out to clubs, you'd started wearing makeup, all those sorts of things. Mm-hmm. And what feeling feeling great? Had you how were you earning money to be able to afford clothing? Well, I was
2: still at college and we used to get I used to get given by my mother finally begrudgingly. Um the family allowance it was called then and I think it was about like five pounds a week or something it was like a government grant everyone got it um but I was allowed to have it and I'd start you know it was what can you do with five pounds not a great deal even then you know but I I was working for my dad at the weekends at his a garden center he was managing and I used to get a few pounds from that and all sorts to try and rake up enough money to put little outfits together and charity shops and get friends to make things. And my sister made me a couple of like tunic tops that were, I, in my mind were very new romantic. Looking back, they probably just look like plastic bags, but who cares? Um, so yeah, it was all, it was thrift. It was a time of thrift. We had no money. I could go out to a nightclub and get the bus there, the bus back go to the nightclub, have a one drink and it would cost £4, mm. you
1: know. <laughs> it was just about being out. It was about it,
2: being out yeah. and I wasn't care, it didn't bother me that I wasn't drinking, didn't care. I was just with people who were like me, you know, especially with the alternative clubs. In Birmingham in the 80s there was um, a massive alternative sort of revival sort of thing. It was sort of post-Blitz and Taboo in London. Birmingham had the zigzag, the Powerhouse, the Kipper Club. And there was a massive community of freaks. And we'd all, I made loads of friends and, you know, it was all boys in makeup and goths and punks and rockers and you name it. And there was no barriers. Everyone just kind of did what they wanted. Um, and
1: accepted, accepted each other. Yeah.
2: You, I mean, the Powerhouse on a Wednesday, big nightclub, and it used to, they used to pack it out. Full of it would be a mixture of punks, rockers, teds. um, So what was the music? Trannies. What was the music like then? It was alternative. It was like rocky, punky. um, And in those days, you know, you could say the word tranny and it wouldn't offend people. We'd call ourselves trannies, so I am allowed to say that word if anyone objects. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> because I was one myself Yes,
0: <laughs> and I'm what,
2: reclaiming
1: it And what music did you like? What, I what? liked pop
2: music I was never fond of the music policy in those clubs I always wanted them to play sort of Madonna or some little culture club but obviously it wasn't that sort of a, of a venue Gradually I started going to the more mainstream gay clubs by the time I was about 18 and the music was a bit more poppy in there
1: Towards the end of the eighties, it became very dancey. Oh, didn't it was it? all
2: Stockton and Waterman, wasn't it? Yeah, it was huge, and, which was great because that introduced me to the amazing Pete Pete Burns, who later became a good friend and lots of interesting <laughs> anecdotes about Pete. Um, but in those days, it was it was so weird to think that the three main influences in my t- mid-teens were George, Marilyn, and Pete. Peter got to know quite well. Georgia became really good friends with. And Marilyn, you know, we have a sort of on-off-high relationship. And he appeared a couple of times in my, my clubs, clubs that I was running. So all the people who I idolised I got to meet and got to know, you know.
1: Which is crazy because that's like the stuff of dreams, isn't it, that it, you think. They'll totally be my is. friend and they we will yeah.
2: we'll all get on. There was me sitting on the back of a 51 bus going into a 45-minute journey into town you know, with my little can of cider with a straw, with my eyeliner on, listening to George and Marilyn and Peter and things. And then years and years later, they'd be sitting in my living room, you know. <laughs> but people always say, don't they, um, don't ever get to know your idols because you'll be disappointed. And I'm very lucky to say that in a vast majority of the people who, I've, who I became friends with and got to know, like the London Club legends and things, I was never disappointed. They weren't how I thought, but I wasn't disappointed.
1: And you actually met George, didn't you, in the 80s?
2: Oh, yes. The first time I ever met George was at, um, I think it was 1987. And it was at a big anti-apartheid gig on Clapham Common. And George was headlining it. So me and my friend Sue had got the, she was a big fan, we'd got the golden up and got the coach from Birmingham to London because it was six pound and that was all we could afford and found our way over to Clapham. Didn't know anything about the tubes or anything. It was like, a, you know, oh my God, that London is so big. <laughs> and we were right at the front. We got right to the front and there was um, a couple of other acts on, well, there was loads of acts on. So there was like pockets of fans, you know, and we were the, the, George fans. And behind us was another group of fans. And they took a dislike to, to me, particularly because of my hair and things. Oh, at that time, I'd got that long black crimped hair, very gothic looking and um, lots of makeup. We ended up having a fight, basically, our group of fans and their group of fans. And they all went for me. I was the easy target. So one of the security men who was at the barriers sort of dragged me over the top of the barrier and went, you know, you could see what was going on, basically. And he went, go and stand over there, son. And I was, like, by the side of the stage. And George <laughs> George came on, walked past me, went onto the stage, did his set. And it was the time, if people were around then, you'll remember the, the week after the Sun newspaper had this big front page title. Boy George has eight weeks to live. Junkie George has eight weeks to live. Because he... Well, he was a junkie at that point and he'd gone on stage with a face pack on and it hadn't wiped it off and he was incoherent and backstage he was falling everywhere, like rolling on the grass and things. It was terrible, really, really sad. But that was the first time that I met him because when he came off stage, he sort of grabbed me and gave me a big kiss on the, on the cheek and went, hiya, oh, yeah, like that. And I was aware that it was being filmed, but I didn't know by who. And years and years and years later, MTV did um, a special on George when Culture Club had reformed, I think, in 1990 or maybe 2000, I don't know. And they did this big thing on him and they found out, found all this footage out. And by then I was friends with George. So they'd asked me to do an interview about our friendship. I was, yeah, yeah, whatever. I was always very careful, even in those days, of what I said because it's personal and private and I don't want to, you know, ruin our friendship. So I was, George was in the room, actually, and, um, and we did the interview. I was very careful, very good. And then they showed me all these clips, and I was going, oh, and this was you, look, you and George, you've been friends since, da, da, da. and I was like, well, I didn't really know him then, you know. It was just look and into." But when they actually aired the programme, they said, George fell into the arms of friend and fellow gender bender, Dusty O. Well, I was like 17, you know, I was... <laughs> didn't know him. I just got lucky. But um, it was left on and we laugh about it now.
1: But what did you think of him when you saw him like that?
2: I thought he was drunk. I was very naive. I didn't really understand about drugs in those. That the only drug I'd ever come close to was um, smoking a joint and I didn't like that because I didn't smoke. So I just thought he was drunk. <laughs> he wasn't.
1: No, but were you disappointed? No. Oh, so you, you didn't no. mind? You I was were just... I was just, um, I don't know, I
2: was just curious. It was like, oh, what's happening here then? You know? I think at that point in my life, I was very open to everything. I was just absorbing everything that was around me, all the things that were going on, all the different pop cultures and things. And I wasn't. Um, I didn't have an opinion as such at that point. I think
1: you just accept things, don't you, you yeah, that Yeah, you
2: just accept it. It's like a sponge, aren't you? And you say, oh, that's how it is then. Oh, that's curious. And it didn't really occur to me that he was like out of control.
1: <laughs> you left college. Was university ever an option?
2: I never wanted to go to university. I did all right at college. Um, I didn't do as well as I did with my O-levels because I'd spent most of the time going out while I was at college and having a wonderful time. It's
1: terrible, isn't it, that that's the time? Uh,
2: well, I didn't learn all, everything that I should have learned, but I learned how to do a beautiful eyebrow
1: well, have you seen? and a
2: wonderful lip line. I learned how to back comb.
1: <laughs> and it stood you in good stead. <laughs>
2: do my own roots. It did, it did. Um, so, yeah, I, I didn't really want to go to university. Um, the plan was always to do something myself, but I didn't know what.
1: Enter stage left, the prince's trust.
2: Yes, the prince's trust. By this time, I'd sort of become friends with um, a guy who lived up the road called Andrew. We're very close friends, and um, Andrew's a bit like was a bit like me. He wasn't so dressy as me, dressy uppy as me, but he sort of had. We liked the same things, and he would got a car, and he used to drive us into Birmingham, and you know, we could really go out properly in the Midlands. You know, you could. Because he'd got a car, we'd drive to Nottingham and all, all sorts of things. But neither of us had got a job. By that point, I'd been living in a little bedsit in Birmingham and had done my share of going out and dressing up. And it was all getting a bit sort of, you know, been there, done that. It was exciting. It was fun. But you can only do it for so long. And I think I'd done it for about 18 months. And then I met Andrew and I'd moved back to my parents. Because he'd got a car, it was great that we could get out and about. And we saw this little unit. Obviously, we spent most of our time shopping. And we saw this little unit in a place called Mega Active in Birmingham, which was a bit like London's Hyper Hyper at the time, which was like a fashion market. And uh, we said, oh, we should do something here. We hadn't got like a penny between us, not one pence. And yeah, let's let's open a stall. Oh, Yeah, good idea. So I conned my dad out a couple of hundred quid and saying, I'm going to invest this into, mm, this is going to be wonderful. And we set up this little stall and applied for a Prince's Trust grant, which you could get. And I think we used to get £40 a week each, which was just enough to sort of live on and whatever. And we got that for, I can't remember if we had it for a year or or 18 months, but basically that was our wages because The unit didn't, you know, we sold secondhand things that we'd picked up in other secondhand shops, (laughs) so it wasn't, it wasn't exactly a money spinner at that point. But we did turn it into a little bit of a money spinner towards the end because that was when Acid House was just coming in, and um, there was the Smiley logo was everywhere. I'd noticed, oh, you can't really get that; it's really expensive. We should have some T-shirts printed up. So we had these T-shirts printed up. We had a hundred with Trojan say Smile. The stall was called Trojans after a London club icon called Trojan who I'd become quite interested in and read about in magazines like ID and the face and things. So we called the stall after him, a bit naff really, but it was what it was. And, um, and so these smiley things started to really take off. So we did badges, we did hats, we did bags, you name it. Anything you could stick a smiley face on, the acid House smiley face on. And it made us good money. Enough money to bring in my first proper boyfriend, really, who I'd met and sort of I was totally in love with by the, the end of the eighties, Lee. And Lee was, Lee worked in a bakery and, um, but he was a very good stitch queen, as we call them now. He could sew, but hadn't got a machine or anything. So, Lee joined the company, as we called it. There was just the two of us in a tiny stall. And we started doing mix and match patchwork shirts that Lee would make up. And we bought an industrial sewing machine and an industrial overlocker and turned Lee's front room into basically um, our studio where we made things. And Lee and I would be making shirts and trousers and patchwork monstrosities for the stall, and Andrew would be watching the stall. And they sold well as well. They sold really well.
1: And were you the designer?
2: Yes, kind of. But basically um, a normal shirt pattern just in ghastly prints, you know, things that you wouldn't find a shirt in <laughs> at that time. And we also developed a way of doing roughly sleeves and things like that. But it was, I suppose in our own little way, it was creative and it was the start of a more creative life for me. You know, it was my initiation into that sort of creative, visual, visually creative side of life. And the company did well, the company. The three of us did well. Unfortunately, though, Lee and I split up. Um, That was my first heartbreak. After a year and a half, I got dumped.
1: I've never forgiven him.
2: (laughs) Actually, I'm really good friends with him now, but it took 30 years. Um, So we sold off the industrial machinery and split what was left in the bank. And um, in 1989, the end of 1989, I came to London.
1: Well, that seems as good a place as any to end this episode. Fantastic. So the 90s, we are looking at living in London, mm-hmm. becoming the Queen of Soho, <laughs> Dusty O, and being the star and cover star for magazines. So it was all happening in the 90s. It was, and
2: don't forget AIDS as well. LAUGHTER <laughs> I know you might not want to. (laughs) It's all about AIDS in the 90s. Right, George, I've created a soundtrack for the 80s. I've picked three songs. Which song would you like to hear on a desert island and why? Now, the three songs are all special to me. See, I'll see what you think about them. The first one, calling your name, Marilyn. Mm -hmm. The second one, it's a miracle. Culture Club. The third one, you spin me round, dead or alive.
3: Probably, I'd choose "Spin Me Round" because Pete's no longer here, and he was such a massive part of my sort of post-fame life. My fame life. I have so many genius stories about Pete Burns. (laughs) You know, I did this incredible um, radio interview with Pete. um, Yeah. In, in I think it might have been the 90s I was doing this show on uh, I think it was Radio London I can't remember which one it wasn't that's terrible but anyway Pete came in to to be interviewed and we had this most amazing conversation and he actually said to me in that interview just think we, you and I could have been friends all these years and oh. I think the, the thing is that um, in the end I mean if I had the wisdom I had now I would have realized that we were all sort of cut from the same cloth and there was really no need for us to be you know, like at each other's throats the way we were. Yeah. But, um, you know, we were young and childish and, you know, we thought that stuff was important. And I think, you know, in the end, I got to really value what Pete was about. I really loved him in the end. And I was like, I remember once I was sitting outside Bar Italia and there was a commotion in sort of Compton Street. There was just like <laughs> tons of people all sort of running. <laughs> noise. And Pete came all sort of walk, basically in the middle of the road
2: yeah yeah This
3: kind of Vivian Westwood it was one of those sort of showstopper pieces that was like fabric <laughs> yeah. and a cape and it was all sort of roofed and yeah, he was walking boldly down Compton Street causing such commotion and I remember just thinking wow
2: he totally committed to his look
3: Ten minutes in your head I don't think I could cope you know yeah it... but also what a great record you spin me around I've tried to cover it it's such a hard song to sing I tried to do, like, a jazz version of it. Maybe I could do it now because it was a few years back when I was smoking, <laughs> but it's just that song is just so catchy, isn't it? So you wouldn't want to hear Calling Your Name then? Well, it was, it, wasn't, it wouldn't be that I wouldn't want to hear it because I actually really, you know, as I say, I, love, I do love that song. You know, I remember sort of at the time, you know, obviously we were at war with each other, so I remember seeing the video and just thinking, oh, she's self-obsessed, you know, because she says that great bit <laughs> of trying, taking yeah. her own photograph. But I love... You know, Marilyn sort of embodied that kind of very 80s vanity, you know, and he was beautiful. He was absolutely gorgeous. Yeah, it was a great pop song as well. It It was was a great pop song. And we're on speaking terms at the moment. So, yeah, I'm in a good space where, where he's concerned. So I would probably listen to that. But I think the one I would listen to the most is Spin Me Around because, you know, just it's such a great pop song. So you wouldn't listen to It's a Miracle, then, your own? No, no, I sing that all the time. I don't need to listen to that. (laughs) That's that's the one that's always in the the show. You can't avoid it. Okay, George,
2: that's fantastic. Thank you. Next week, we're going to be talking about the 90s.
3: My favourite decade, actually.
0: This podcast was produced and edited by Jackie O'Malley. Post-production is by Carl Svensson at Tadar Media Limited. Music by George O'Dowd and Luke Begley. Produced by Kevin Frost. Original artwork by David Hodge. Podcast artwork design by Lee Dyer. This has been David Hodge, The Boy Who Sat By The Window.
3: The boy who sat by the window window With colourful thoughts flying through his head I'm of the story, but it's not over yet